Hi, this is Jim Minnick, and welcome to Nostrum, the debate soap opera, where deontology is more than just an idea. It's a rebuttal by Jules O'Shaughnessy and the Nostrumite, narrated by me. You'll recall in our last couple of episodes, we've been heading toward the airport and hanging around at the airport prior to our trip down to the Miami Messerschmitt Messoforensics. So, with that said, to remind you, let's get to episode 22, Beware the Jabberwock, My Son. David Brillig, who had for a short period of time considered changing his first name to Twas, was not exactly sure that the plane he was on would crash, but it would not surprise him in the least if it did. An Okeechobee Air Boeing 737? I mean, like, give me a break. Maybe the tickets were only costing something around $27 a head, but once in a while schools had to measure the monetary cost of running a debate team against the emotional cost of losing that team in one fell aeronautical swoop. And what plane would be more likely to swoop than an Okeechobee Air Boeing 737, especially one carrying every team between Elizabeth, New Jersey and Dennis, Massachusetts? If this plane goes down, David says, shaking his head, it'll be the end of forensics as we know it in the Northeast. If this plane goes down, his dramatic interpretation partner, William Hand, says, it wouldn't surprise me in the least. Things like that are always happening to me. He raises his eyes to the top of the cabin overhead, focusing in roughly on the fastened seatbelt sign. Why me, Lord, he pleads. Why me? We'd all be going down together, William, David points out, so it wouldn't exactly be happening only to you. Well, that makes me feel a whole lot better now, doesn't it? This is definitely the group I would pick to stand on line at the pearly gates with. Seth B. Obamash and Mr. Lopat. <sighs> William shudders as he speaks the next name, Alita Devins. God save me from standing behind Alita Devins on the line to St. Peter. You'll have to let me in, she'll tell him, but the little bastard behind me went over by two seconds once in his duo, so I'm sure you'll find a better place for him, perhaps something a little warmer. David elbows him. She's sitting right up there. She can hear you. She's ten aisles away, and she and Mr. Lopat have their foreheads together like they're Siamese twins. Which is true. The two coaches are deep in conversation, discussing whatever it is that coaches say to each other. Her team is here in force, David says, looking around the cabin. There must be 20 Brooklyn behemoth students scattered about, representing virtually all the high school forensic activities. They go to Messerschmitt in force every year, Williams says. They usually sweep in practically every category. Them are Farnsworth... Or us, David, my child, or us. We can take it, too, if we're lucky. Every category, from your lips to God's hearing aid. William looks up heavenward again, or at least fasten the seatbelt signward again. Hear that, God? We're talking night and day, taking a sweepstakes award here. Walk over, big time. Although Okeechobee Air Flight 1701D has yet to pull away from the terminal... Everyone is seated, and every seat is taken. The flight attendants are consulting with each other at the front of the cabin, occasionally looking back with apprehension at the overwhelmingly young and forensic passenger group they are about to serve. The cockpit door is opened, and from the aisle the crew can be seen fussing away at the various controls as if they actually know what they're doing. 
But if they are actually capable pilots, one has to wonder, what are they doing working for a low-rent airline like Okeechobee Air? Suddenly, with the usual roars and jerks, the plane begins to back away from the gate, and David settles back in his seat. He is not a happy flyer under the best of circumstances, and Okeechobee Air Flight 1701D is hardly the best of circumstances. He gives his seatbelt another tug. If it were any tighter, he'd have to remove his spleen. As if being tightly strapped into your seat means anything when the engines give out at 30,000 feet, he closes his eyes. He has to take his mind off the impending takeoff. But closing his eyes brings him back to his new nightmare which has nothing to do with the crashing of airplanes. It is the nightmare that has unexpectedly jumped from behind a corner with boo on its lips and the nightmare that he must confront, and he must confront it soon. His future and his sanity are depending on it. Or was it an unexpected nightmare? He opens his eyes as the plane starts moving forward, that slow taxiing out to the runway that portends the wrenching horror of lifting umpty-ump tons of steel from the ground into thin air simply because science says it's possible. Since when had David Brillig ever been good at science? For that matter, how many Florencistians, period, were ever good at science? These were verbal gerbils, perfect scores on the English SATs, not so great on the math except for the policy kids and a few overachievers from the magnet schools. What if God punished them for their lack of understanding natural law? It could happen. The Bible was filled with stuff like that. As if, David thinks, the Bible means all that much, at least not to him, not now. But it was not always thus. David is in the middle seat on one side of the aisle, three across on each side, with Jasmine Maru on his left, doing her homework, of all things, and William on his right, listening to the airplane headphones, female on one side, male on the other, the persistent nightmare in its simplest terms. What the hell was he going to do about it? The plane made a turn, and the captain's voice came over the loudspeaker. The words were garbled, leading David to hope that the sound system maintenance was not an indication of the rest of the craft's maintenance history. What did he say, he asks. We're next in line to take off, William tells him. He said that? He said something like that. But we are next to take off. There is only one plane ahead of us when we turn. David closes his eyes again. Takeoffs. Most crashes occurred during takeoffs, or if he made it that far, during landings. These were the times when the autopilots were off and the potential for human error was at its height. Wake me when it's over, he mutters softly. The engines give a gruff roar in response, and a moment later the plane inches forward. Another roar, and then the plane starts rolling down the runway, faster, faster, every stressed metal inch of it pressing against fate to once again defy the non-scientist's logic and become airborne. We have liftoff, William announces beside him, as the nose of the plane stabs upward, pushing David back into his seat. Let's just hope it stays lifted off, he thinks, his eyes still closed. And then the worst is over, at least for now. The plane is still climbing, but the angle of ascent is lower, and the captain would right about now be switching off the no-smoking sign if anyone were allowed to smoke. But David keeps his eyes closed. Maybe he'll fall asleep. Maybe not. And in any case, there is still the nightmare to consider. He can feel William adjusting himself to his right, 
and his mind wanders as far back as he can remember. And William was always there. Middle school, grammar school, preschool, the neighborhood, even the hospital nursery where they were born a day apart. They might not share a drop of common blood, but they were twins both geographically and chronologically. They even looked alike, right from the beginning. Blue-eyed blondies bawling next to each other in the nursery and their parents' ritualistically identical videotapes. Their mothers had even shared the same maternity room. And David could hear the voices over the years, always saying the same things. Oh, they could be brothers. They're just like brothers. They're better than brothers. Two peas in a pod. The best of friends from the day they were born. The best of friends. The best of friends. The best of friends. No doubt about it, they were the best of friends. Always had been. Maybe always would be. There was nothing wrong with that now, was there? Think about it. What hadn't they shared? They liked the same everything and always had. And they always had each other, no matter what else happened. They not only had shared experiences, they had shared reactions to those experiences. If one liked a movie, the other one liked the movie. If one was allergic to clams, the other was allergic to clams. If one had seen Singing in the Rain 127 times, the other had seen Singing in the Rain 127 times. Not necessarily, if usually together, but always the same. And David hadn't given it a second thought for many, many years. Until high school, and especially now. Because there were other factors involved, factors he didn't understand, and factors he had to come to grips with. Because, no doubt about it, like swallows have wings, like elephants have trunks, like meatballs have cholesterol, like rental movies have late return charges, William, his William, the best of his friends, was gay. There was no doubt about it, and he admitted it freely, or at least he admitted it freely to David. Last night, on the telephone, I'm gay, he had said. Oh, David had replied. What else could he say? Doesn't that mean anything to you, William had asked? I don't know. Well, it should. Think about it. David had nodded. Not that William could see him nod over the phone. I will think about it, he said. And he's thinking about it now. Not that it matters to him one way or the other, whether William is gay or French or Farsi or Republican, left-handed, one-legged, three-eyed or snaggletoothed. What matters to David is, if William is gay, maybe David is gay too. They could be brothers. They're just like brothers. They're better than brothers. Two peas and a pod. The best of friends from the day they were born. The best of friends. The best of friends. The best of friends. Or maybe more. Or maybe not. David, 17 years old, has never kissed a girl, provided you don't count whatever silliness might have taken place in middle school when everybody seemed to consider themselves steadies and betrothed and very serious, even though it was more gossiped about than real. But, he hastens to add, he has never kissed a boy either, including not in middle school. He's never even thought about kissing boys, and he has thought about kissing girls. But he has also thought about being a movie star and a rock star and being able to fly and winning the lottery and buying a house all for himself, and none of those things were real either. What does it mean to be gay? Are you gay because you think you're gay, or because you say you're gay? Or are you gay whether you know it or not, and it's just waiting to come out when you least expect it? William hadn't told him this. He had only said those two words, I'm gay. What the hell did that mean? The captain has turned off the seatbelt sign, the flight attendant announces. 
And then she goes on to say that if you must walk around the cabin, you can, but if you have an ounce of sense, you won't move an inch, and you'll keep your seatbelt so tight that a spleen replacement is a real possibility. So, David wonders, am I gay too? And if I am, how would I know it? If I'm not, how would I know that? And therein lies the persistent nightmare. Not the knowing, but the not knowing. But at least one thing is certain. David and William have to have a talk, a long talk, and they have to have it soon, real soon. Is David Brillig gay? Should he change his name to Twas? Is 1701D as obvious a reference as it seems? Do they teach nostrum at institutes? Do I dare to eat a peach? Isn't it obvious that this was not only written before 9-11, but also before Snakes on a Plane? If you can tear yourself away from the rise and fall of the Red Sox, you will be wasting your time looking for the answers in our next installment, Brussels Sprouts, Cruciform Blessing, or International Espionage Plot. <laughs>